I'm Brian Lord, and this is the Kid Lit Studio Podcast. I'm a veteran interviewer, but a Kid Lit newbie, and I want to learn how to be a successful children's author. Rather than reinvent the wheel, I'm asking experienced Kid Lit writers, illustrators, agents, and more to share their stories, failures, successes, and advice with me and you. Make sure to subscribe to the Kid Lit Studio Podcast so you can learn how to be more successful too. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, and this is the Kid Lit Studio Podcast. I'm your host slash writer in training. Our guest today is Kristen O'Donnell-Tubb. She's a middle grade author extraordinaire of books like <laughs> The Story Collector, A Dog Like Daisy, and Selling Hope, among many others. Her newest book is The Story Seeker, which is a sequel to The Story Collector. She's a fellow SCBWI Mid-South member who, pro- who proudly calls herself a great big dork. Kristen, yes. thanks for coming on. Ah, thank you. I, I'm so happy to be here. I really, this is my favorite topic, talking about writing and creating. I, I love it. I love it. Thank you for having me, Brian. Well, I'm glad to have you on. And so a message, and this is great for Kristen, but it's a message for the people watching. So first of all, congrats to you for turning in for this. So um, the Kidlet Studio Potty podcast is designed to help newer writers like myself learn how to get better both of the craft and the business of writing. And so just the fact that you're here right now proves that you are someone who wants to get better, uh, someone who is putting in the time to get better, to improve and be better than you were yesterday. So well done in advance. So Kristen, no pressure. me too. Yes. (laughs) I feel like that describes me too. I want to be a better writer tomorrow than I am today, for sure. Well, that's awesome. Well, that's probably one of your secrets to success, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I, I do think trying to be always learning, I do think mm-hmm. that's part of it. I really do. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So first question, and we kind of set this up a little bit like a story framework, like your origin guide, journey, everything else. So the origin where, story. The origin story. So like <laughs> Batman and Wonder Woman, everything else. Yeah, so. there are no poisonous spiders involved in my origin. <laughs> Thank gosh. <laughs> so, so where is it? So where did you get your start as a writer? Uh, I mean, I have to probably go all the way back to sixth grade on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked writing in school, but I didn't love it. It wasn't something that I like, you know, my teacher would assign it and I would be like, okay, not like, yes. Um, so, but my, I loved reading. I was a really good reader mm-hmm. and I had a fantastic elementary school librarian. Her name is Sheila Rollins. And mm-hmm. I went to city park elementary school in Athens, Tennessee. Okay. And she set up this program where you could read three books by a writer and then interview that writer by telephone. And wow. so in sixth grade, I got to interview Madeline LaEngle by telephone. That, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty incredible. Um, so I told, you know, I mean, A Wrinkle in Time is still my all time favorite book. Mm-hmm. And so I told her I wanted to be a writer over and oh, it was this was also the first time I had ever used a speakerphone. So it was really high tech. And that was one of the big things that I remember from this interview was just being able to talk out into the air and she could hear us. And we were all like, so I've just dated myself by telling you (laughs) the speakerphone was brand new technology. But um, I told her I wanted to be a writer and she said, good for you. Keep reading and you can do it. Mm -hmm. And it was just, that kind of realization of like, oh, um, I could do that. 
she didn't like kind of scoff or she didn't say something like, um, oh, well, your teachers would have already told you if you had a inclination toward writing. She didn't say any of that. And I thought that was kind of neat. And uh, so I tried from there. And my very first poem was published the, when I was in seventh grade. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now we're so, jumping, I'm jumping ahead a little bit and we'll, we'll come back to kind of your origin story here. You are, you know, you love doing school visits and Zoom visits and that sort of thing, or, or you know, Skype visits, that sort of thing. Do you try to imitate Madeline Langle when you do them? Absolutely. In fact, my final slide in when I do school visits is a picture of her. And um, I basically tell the same story. I tell the story of if you want to share your story, because I feel like now there are thousands of ways to share a story. I feel like, I mean, between YouTube and TikTok and Instagram and all of these technologies that young writers now have available to them that we didn't have, mm -hmm. I feel like I, I kind of encourage um, storytelling more than writing. Mm. And I try to do that. But I do try to say, like, Madeline Engel says you can do it, and you can do it. <laughs> so <laughs> I, that's one of my – and I tell teachers that, too, when I'm booking these school visits, that that's, that's the message that I try to bring um, to students is if they want to share their story, they absolutely can do it. Mm -hmm. What was the, so in addition to the poem, was that the first thing or, or uh, what was the first, I guess, maybe thing that you had published that you felt like you were a writer? Oh, uh, I still need to have that. <laughs> no, um, I, well, okay. So I worked for, um, uh, Dalmatian Press was probably when I st just first started freelance writing. So I was writing for the Tennessean a little bit, which is, of course, the newspaper here in Nashville. And I was writing for magazines. I did a lot of like collector type um, articles of like collecting antique playing cards and collecting glassware. Oh, okay. uh, I don't even know how I fell into that, but I kind of <laughs> did. Um, but I met this editor, um, Kathy Knight, who worked for Dalmatian Press, and she is definitely one of my mentors. She mm -hmm. is someone who I think of as guiding my career and guiding um, how I saw children's literature. And she said, oh, we're always in need of freelance writers. Like, when does that happen? <laughs> it never <laughs> happens, right? And so she said, would you be interested in writing children's books? And I said, absolutely, I would love to try it. Um, and so I brought some samples for the, for the Zoom. So I was writing these kinds of books. I was writing Powerpuff Girls. Um, I wrote this kind of like really basic, uh, uh, I don't know what they're called, um, workbooks. Mm -hmm. And these were available in the Target dollar spot. Um, let's see. Oh, these were some of my favorites, the Scooby-Doo books. I love writing <laughs> Scooby-Doo. So I always jokingly say that the hours and hours that I spent watching TV as a kid <laughs> eventually paid off. <laughs> Zoics is probably part of your um, normal vocabulary. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And ruh-roh and yeah, all of this. So um, I think once I, I, one time I was in a grocery store and I saw that Scooby-Doo book that I didn't know it was going to be in there. And that was probably the first moment of like, oh, I wrote that. <laughs> and it was amazing. It's an, it's always an amazing feeling. I still go into bookstores and when they have my books, I'm, I'm blown away by that. I, I love it. It's it, that feeling never goes away. 
Yeah, that's awesome. So, <laughs> when, so this question is from Jennifer Navarre. Um, okay. How many books did you write before getting published? Hmm. I have written probably, I, I, I wrote a ton of picture books because I thought that's where I thought that's where I want, I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. I still love picture books. I think they're amazing works of art. I, I, I think they're poetry when they're done so well. And when the art go, blends with them, it, they're amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so as you can see, I would still love to write picture books. <laughs> um, I, but so I wrote, gosh, maybe two, three dozen <laughs> picture books. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe not 40, but definitely more than 20. Yeah. Um, somewhere around there. And then I probably wrote, I know I have at least two middle grade novels. One of them was historical fiction that I researched quite a bit mm -hmm. and got a, a few nibbles on um, that was set in the um, school integration of Nashville in 1971. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, it was good, but when I look back on it, it, it was, it was, it was tough. Um, <laughs> and then I wrote one that I didn't realize at the time was a 100% knockoff of A Wrinkle in Time, which is my favorite <laughs> book. And so reading it years later, I was like, oh. <laughs> so um, I, so I have those two, so probably 30 mm -hmm. manuscripts. And then, wow. I mean, I have several also, that since I've been published, I've tried and are still not selling or, or still aren't quite there yet or something like that. So I probably have another 15 since I've been published that I've started, I've tried and have not sold. When do you know when to drop a project? Oh, gosh, that's such a great question. Um, for me, it really is instinctual. Um, I have a project right now that I'm working on and I can tell it's not there yet. Mm -hmm. And it's really for me a matter now of if, if I land on it in a timely enough manner for it to, for that, I know I can at least get it close. So I have this one book, it's a cat middle grade because I've written several dog middle grades now. <laughs> um, and I, I thought, Oh, I'll try a cat. We have two cats too. And that voice, that cat voice is just not nearly as easy to nail down as a dog voice. And I keep coming back to it thinking there's going to be something there. So, I mean, and I, I have one book, gosh, called Island of Superstition that my agent, bless his heart, I just keep sending it back to him in different forms. <laughs> and that one I've probably been trying to get published for, oh my, uh, eight years something like that. So um, I don't know that I know how when to give up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I would say sometimes there is, a, there is something that just goes, uh, this isn't, this isn't what I need to be working on. Uh, when, what was your dream when you got started as a writer? Oh, I love this question. Um, I, I think it was just to have readers. I think it's that simple. And I, I think it's still that simple. I mean, I think there is a lot in publishing that can distract you from that goal. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Um, there are all these beautiful shiny awards and um, recognitions, and those are all wonderful and lovely, but those are things that are way out of a writer's control. Um, but having readers is something that 
is a little bit closer to home and it's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And so I think once I realized that's what it should be, that was a big stepping stone for me in getting closer to my Mm -hmm. goals. Um, And I still have to (laughs) to remind myself of that quite a bit. Like this is who it's for. It is for readers ages eight to 14. And if I can find those readers that love Daisy or love Viviani or something, that's, that's, what it's all about. A lot of what you write is historically based. Yeah. Uh, why, why do you love history so much? Oh gosh. Um, I think the reason for that is that <laughs> we humans don't change as quickly as we'd like to think we do. Our technology mm-hmm. changes and what we invent changes, but our hearts and souls are still very much the same as they've been for the last, gosh, thousand, two thousand years. <laughs> um, and it, we still want the same sorts of things. And so the stories that history holds are still applicable today. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, Gosh, I mean, people in 1928 here, let's see, here's Story Collector is 1928 and Mm -hmm. Story Seeker is 1929. The things that people wanted then, they wanted healthy families, Uh (laughs) um, which we can very much relate to right now, especially. They Mm -hmm. wanted nice homes for their families. They wanted their kids to succeed. They wanted um, to look nice. They wanted, um, so when you look back, one of my favorite research tools, this is, this is kind of a, a great uh, tip that I learned somewhere along the way, I don't even remember where, is when I'm researching history, I look at one ads in mm-hmm. the newspaper from that time frame, uh-huh. and it really gives you a good sense of what the vocabulary was like at that time and what they're seeking, what they were looking for. So, so many of the one ads are still things like um, how to lose weight. Or um, how to find your true love or, um, you know, different things for sale. And it's just, it's fascinating to me. I'm like, we still want those things. <laughs> yeah. And that, by the way, that's a great one. I, I read that. I have the 2013 children. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's like children's authors book. It's that purple yeah. book and everything else. And I was reading, that's actually what we said. Oh, I need to interview Kristen because I was reading your suggestions there. And, awesome. yeah. and it's, and it's, of course it's timeless that was seven years ago, but it's, it's a timeless thing. And, yeah. um, and I do that all the time. I was listening like for, for people who, whenever they may see this or, or hear this, you know, it's April of 2020. So coronavirus is the big number one thing. And of course yeah. online and everywhere else we're hearing ads for, or like PSAs for how to stay healthy. And, uh, there, I was thinking of this when it came on, I, I listened to, uh, radio classics like 148 on Sirius XM and they yeah. and they play PSAs and that sort of thing from the 50s and so their whole thing uh-huh. and so it's just like you're saying were advertisements or PSAs or anything like that um, but uh, they were saying to avoid flu season keep your feet dry and gargle with antiseptic and uh-huh. so that were the those were like kind of like social distancing and washing your hands or whatever. Yes. Uh, but fascinating. Yeah. So I love your little tips that you have and, or like emailing library of Congress or all those other things that you shared with, Hey, here's how you can get information if you want to be historically accurate or just learn about what people were thinking about at the time. Yeah. You know, can I, can I just say, I think 
there is nothing that makes a librarian's day like emailing them and asking them about their specialty. <laughs> um, just like, I mean, like writers love to talk about writing. Uh -huh. Librarians love to search for information, mm -hmm. very specific information. And um, I mean, I've asked librarians things like, how would you start a 1928 Plymouth? Or, oh, yeah. um, you know, like, how would you, what was rent in Chicago in 1910? That was for selling hope. And I mean, they, I, I've never had a librarian not be able to give me an answer. And I think that's amazing. <laughs> because, what, what other tips do you have for working with librarians or making librarians happy? Oh, what a great question. Um, I think that anytime you can help make someone else's job easier, that's always a helpful thing. So, um, you know, offering to help with your local library story time mm. or um, doing writing workshops or um, proposing, you know, author panels for their YA day or something like that. Um, uh, Libraries, like any public entity, have very tight budgets, so that may or may not be in their budget, so keeping that in mind. But I think um, they love supporting local authors. That's been my experience, at least, um, and from, from what I hear, that's pretty much across the board. Um, they love supporting the authors in their areas. Um, and so anytime you can offer things like, or for teachers offering um, study guides for your books, or one of the things that has been really useful in April 2020 is I have um, a YouTube channel and all it has on there are um, excerpts of me reading from my books, a mm -hmm. couple of my books and six second writing tips. Uh -huh. And apparently a lot of them have said like, here, go here and watch these six second writing tips. Watch number one today and we'll talk about, about that tomorrow. <laughs> and I think that's fascinating. Um, so anytime you can offer something like that, I think that's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So um, what does your writing day look like? Um, it does not look like a whole lot of writing. I gotta be honest. Um, somebody asked this on Twitter uh, recently and it was just a general like, hey writers, how much of your day do you actually spend writing? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm talking like, I think, you know, in a traditional eight to five work day. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say my day is I still to, you know, even in quarantine now, I get up, I get dressed because I do feel like if you're writing in your pajamas, I can't be as productive. I know a lot of people can. Um, but I usually write or revise. Right now I happen to be revising from about 9 a.m. to about 11. And that's about it. Um, the rest of my day is really spent marketing my books that are already out or coming up with promotional plans for books that are coming out or um, <laughs> doing school visits um, back when I was traveling quite a bit more before oh, <laughs> a lot of spring events got canceled and I'm missing them so much. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of it is spent um, doing the promotional and marketing side of it. Mm -hmm. um, so the actual writing is really only about two hours a day. Um, and I don't write every day. I know Stephen King <laughs> recommends that, 
But for me, that puts pressure on the story that um, my lifestyle can't quite handle right now. And so I have found, I've tried. And I also don't keep up with word counts. I think for me, a satisfying, satisfied writing day, I'm not saying that correctly, a satisfying <laughs> writing day mm -hmm. is um, one where I've written like a scene that makes me happy or that has made me cry mm -hmm. or um, I've, I've nailed a really good line of dialogue that I know is going to make like my editor laugh or something like that. That That's a good writing day. So it only really takes one great line of dialogue. <laughs> I, I'm really easy to please. <laughs> All right, so this, this next question is from Rachel Kenyon. Okay. Um, what is uh, your timeline for writing, editing, submitting? Or writing, oh, editing, okay. and submitting? Um, well, recently, I would say within the last probably four or five years, I've been doing a book a year. Mm -hmm. um, which is fantastic. And I really, I really love the schedule. I hope I can kind of continue close to that every year, or every other year. Um, so really it looks like um, I usually put together a proposal, um, which is about five chapters and a synopsis currently. Um, that is not of course the case when you're first starting out, when you're first starting out, you really do need to have the whole manuscript. And I would say my first three books were the whole manuscript. Hmm. Um, so only the last four or five have been where I did a proposal first with a synopsis. Um, and from there, then if it sells, um, it usually is about another, year of researching and writing and kind of getting it nailed down. Although I'm getting closer to being able to make that like 10 months, maybe. <laughs> so I've been able to, to shave a little bit of time there. Um, so from the moment that it's an idea to the moment that it's a book that I'm turning into my editor, that's about a year. Um, usually. How long did it take you to write your first, uh, I guess, uh, long, you know, longer non-picture book? Four years. Really? Okay. Four years. So I've, I've trimmed it by three years. I feel like it's pretty good. <laughs> if there's a definition of, you know, being able to, to streamline it, I guess I'm learning how to do that. But um, yeah, Autumn Winifred Oliver took me four years because I, I over-researched that mm -hmm. book, but I'm, I'm really glad that I did because it, it was a lesson in and of itself of, of, what is necessary and what is just my passion. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. So it, from, from the time that I turn it in and back and forth with the editor, that's usually another uh, year. I mean, it, it ends up being a year, usually two rounds of edits after the first draft is turned in, mm -hmm. then a round of copy edits. Um, mm -hmm. And for historical fiction, I usually end up doing, two or three rounds of copy edits because they have different people who check different types of facts um, for historical fiction. So, um, and somewhere in that time frame, you get a cover mock-up somewhere in that time frame. They kind of tell you how they plan on promoting the book, um, that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, from the moment it's an idea to the moment it's like an actual book that you can hold in your hand, it's usually about a two year process. So, All right. Yeah. 
So uh, how, um, how involved are you? You just mentioned the, how they're going to promote it. How involved are you in the decision-making of, of that process of promoting a book? I would say 100% <laughs> because most authors are um, promoting their books uh, very heavily and um, publishers have a, uh, I'm trying to think, they have a publicity plan for every book. Mm -hmm. um, but the author is the expert in that book. So they, there are things like, um, here's a great example. So Zeus dog of chaos is my mm -hmm. book that's coming out June 2nd. Okay. And, um, this dog is a diabetic alert dog. And so I did a lot of research on type one diabetes and what it takes to train a dog to be able to detect blood sugar highs and lows and that kinds of thing. And part of the proceeds of this book are going to benefit the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, JDRF. Okay. So I hope to contact JDRF and you know maybe do some promotional things together with them. I can do that because I'm, I wrote the book. <laughs> Publicists in a publishing house have very limited time because they are doing this with 20 books. Mm -hmm. So it does end up being um, something that if you have a specialty market like that, oh, and another market for this one would be middle school band programs. Mm -hmm. So this one just happens to be set at Page Middle School <laughs> in the band program, which we both know. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so I'm hoping to kind of look at um, like music for all, which is a nationwide band program and maybe mm -hmm. see if there's something that they would be interested in for, mm -hmm. you know, partnering on some things. So um, the reason why I say 100% in is these are the types of things that I feel like the author should pursue um, and that publicists really kind of can't, they mm -hmm. don't have the resources, they don't have the time. And so, um, yeah, I feel like, and, but as long as you keep your publisher in the loop, they will, they are 100% there supporting you doing these things as long as it's reasonable, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I'm, so uh, this is one of my cheat questions and one that's hopefully applies to a lot of people, but is one of those I'm cheating because I got have you on here. So just about finished with the first manuscript, or at least it's in sight here. At what point uh, so before you sent yours out for submission to an agent, anyone else, did you use an editor or what advice would you give to someone in that position where they're getting close to reaching out to potential agents? Um, I have, I have used uh, a, a freelance editor before I did use one for autumn, which ended up becoming my first um, sold novel. Mm -hmm. um, and she was an editor who worked in children's literature. So I think that's very important. If you do decide to invest in that, mm -hmm. you don't have to. Um, mm -hmm. But if you do decide to invest in that, I think you need to pick someone who edits exactly what it is that you are writing. Mm -hmm. um, children's books are vastly different than adult books. Mm -hmm. um, and fiction is vastly different from nonfiction. I mean, those are, you know, those are kind of obvious statements, but it definitely applies to editing as well. Uh -huh. um, I <laughs> lost my train of thought. <laughs> I don't think you need an editor. What I do think you need, and you're already doing this, Brian, and a lot, and this is kind of how we met and a lot of our writing friends are doing this. I do think you need 
organizations like SCBWI, mm -hmm. which is, of course, the Society of Children's Book Writer Writers and Illustrators, because mm -hmm. um, I think you find out more information faster than you would kind of digging on your own. Mm -hmm. As we all know, relationships are everything, and that is true for children's literature as well. And there are opportunities to meet editors, agents, um, through SCBWI, there's opportunities to get critiques that way. There's opportunities to meet published authors and <laughs> illustrators who can help you um, decide the best track. I mean, some of them are really, really helpful in helping you decide, you know, who you should query, um, that kind of thing. So um, I think that would be my number one piece of advice is join SCBWI mm -hmm. and <laughs> And do the research. I mean, the number one thing, I, that's how I found my agent was through mm -hmm. SCBWI. Okay. Um, I went to the national conference in New York mm -hmm. and saw, so my agent is Josh Adams of Adams Literary. They're mm -hmm. out of um, Charlotte, North Carolina. His wife is also a literary agent, Tracy mm -hmm. Adams. She specializes in kind of picture books, early middle grade, and he specializes in middle grade and YA. Mm -hmm. Kind of. I think they both represent both, though. Um, so I saw her speak in New York, and so I queried them with Selling Hope. I sold Autumn without an agent, hmm. which is kind of rare anymore, but this was back in 2006. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so but I queried them with Selling Hope, and... Um, and I've been working with them ever since. I've been working with them since 2009. Wow. So, which is really great. And I think it might be a little bit of a rarity to uh -huh. have worked with them for over a decade, but um, I, they're fantastic. I really adore uh, how they do business. So, so I guess I'm still learning this whole process. So do people bounce around from agent to agent after a book or two books or something, or how does that normally work? I think a lot of people do. I think a lot of people do. I think um, having an agent is, I mean, it gets compared a lot to being in it like a relationship, like a, like a boyfriend, girlfriend, <laughs> or, or intimate, some kind of relationship, which I think is so funny. But it's the reason why is because your agent is your go-to. Here's, here's a great example of what I always say, like how much you have to trust your agent. When you sign with an agent, all of the money that you get paid from a publishing house goes to the agent mm -hmm. and the agent pays you. Mm -hmm. So you really have to trust that person. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's why I think it's very, very important that it's a, it's a good communicative uh, working relationship. And so having it compared to um, a, a, you know, a, a really deep friendship in that regard makes sense when you think about that, um, you know, they're reading stuff that hopefully you've written from your heart. They're reading manuscripts that mean a lot to you and they're handling a lot of your money. <laughs> <laughs> then, um, yeah, that's probably why it's compared to those types of relationships. <laughs> <laughs> so for you, what is the hardest part about writing? Oh, um, the promotion part. I, I'm, I'm not very comfortable self-promoting. Um, I don't love it. I'm getting better at it, I think. 
-hmm. but um, I don't really love the, I could talk about your book all day long, Brian, <laughs> <laughs> but talking about my book, sometimes I, I could talk about the research and how it's written and all that stuff, but actually trying to like sell a book to me is, uh, is, Oh, it makes me squirm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. What, what are you best at? Like if you were to put together like a super team of writers that for every process of creating a book and you were chosen for one part, what's, the, what's kind of your writing superpower that you'd be involved with? I think I'd be the researcher. Mm. I, I feel pretty confident in my research skills. Um, and I mean, and I think I'm lumping into that because you know this too, Brian, with your background is um, interviewing, mm -hmm. interviewing people, finding experts, finding people who are, would be are willing to share what they know and love with you. And people, <clears throat> I think, sometimes think that that's a hard thing to do is to approach somebody and say, hey, I want to ask you a lot of questions about diabetic alert dogs. <laughs> but what's amazing is, I mean, think about when people come to you, Brian, and they're like, tell us about what it's like to write a children's book. I'm like, where do I begin? <laughs> I mean, it's really, people love to talk about their passions. Mm -hmm. And you don't get into dog training unless you're passionate about it or, or whatever. Um, the Great Smoky Mountains or the New York Public Library, there are all sorts of things. And so asking people about what they love and mm -hmm. researching it definitely where I would fit in. And I would be the furthest away from being in charge of plot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's my, that's my Achilles heel. <laughs> so how do you overcome that? Cause obviously I mean, I've read two of your books and I, I think they're great, but what, okay. how have you overcome that weakness? Or research. Supposed weekend? I really, I think research for me is how I plot my books. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like if I talk to enough people and I read enough about the topic, that ideas start to pop up for plot. Mm -hmm. um, until I've done that, I really like this book that I'm struggling with now um, that I feel like, you know, like I said, I may finish it. I may abandon it. Who knows? I haven't done enough research on it. And mm -hmm. I, I can feel that when I'm stuck with the plot for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, you, one thing I really love is in the story seeker, because um, I love I love history too, um, and you're great at using setting in your book. So Jennifer Navarre had a second question. I'd be interested to know more about how she used the setting of the uh, New York Public Library as almost another character in her books. Yeah, I love the idea of setting being a character. Um, I went to an SCBWI conference one year and there is a literary agent who is named Tina Wexler. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm getting that name correct, but I feel like I am. <laughs> um, and she said, uh, if your setting, if your story can be set anywhere, your setting isn't working hard enough. Mm. And that piece of advice has always stuck with me. So I am giving credit to Tina for that one. <laughs> um, so that piece of advice has always stuck with me. But also that setting to me definitely is always a character, um, not just with the New York Public Library in Story Collector and Story Seeker, but also Autumn Winifred Oliver is, um, is the story of the Cades Cove and how it became a national park rather than a community of people who lived and worked there. Hmm. Um, so I think it has a lot to do. I think with setting in particular, it has a lot to do with what your story is like with zoo's dog of chaos. 
setting is important to do things like set mood and um, establish a little bit more of your character and, and what their personality is like. So it's important in things like that. But when you are really, I mean, the, the fascinating thing about the Fiedlers was that they lived in the library. <laughs> so the, the, it has to be a character in that case. Um, mm -hmm. The library really, and so in Autumn Winifred Oliver, here's Autumn, um, the, the story is what happened to them after their homes became part of the national park. Mm -hmm. So you really do, I think it's what your story is, and if setting is super unique or is part of the plot, then it does. It has to be written as its own character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great. So one last question to round things up. And of course, if you have anything you want to add, you can. But uh, what advice would you give to yourself if you had to go back and start over? Uh, I would say trust the timing. Hmm. Um, I think I was very impatient <laughs> <laughs> when I first started writing. Um, I was impatient to finish a manuscript and then I was impatient to send it out and then I was impatient to get an agent and then I was impatient to sell that book and then I was impatient because my editor was sending me three different versions of it, you know, three different <laughs> edit letters and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> beautiful books take time. Beautiful art takes time. Um, and it is well worth waiting mm -hmm. if you can be patient through it. So that is definitely the advice that I would give myself. <laughs> <laughs> and now where can people go to learn? I know you mentioned a YouTube channel, but where can people go uh, to learn more about your work and what you do? Oh, sure. Um, I have a website, kristentub.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N. T-U-B-B.com. Mm -hmm. um, I also have an author page on Facebook that's Kristen O'Donnell Tub Author. And I am on Instagram. I should get these more like level across the board, but I'm, I'm really, as I said, self-promotion, not my jam. Um, <laughs> I'm on Instagram as Kristen Tub, one word. Mm -hmm. And I am on Twitter as K-Tub. Oh, and I'm doing currently, I don't know, I mean, if you're listening to this right now, I'm doing a giveaway for teachers on Twitter right now. So if you listen to it within the next couple of days, if you see this or listen to this podcast, um, come over and visit if you're a teacher. Great, great. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And for those, uh, sure. great. And for those watching or listening, uh, to get more, you can subscribe to the Kid Lit Studio podcast on Apple Podcasts or pretty much anywhere you find it, uh, KidLitStudio.com on Facebook, and uh, and probably a few other places as we get going. So thank you so much, Kristen, and thank oh. you everybody for watching and listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Kid Lit Studio podcast. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and comment. It really does make a difference. Also, please share with any friends who are involved in KidLit. You can find out more at kidlitstudio.com or KidLit Studio on social media. I'm Brian Lord.